in the Black community, we've always had a fear of anything that deals with any kind of scientific care. You can understand why people are afraid and why they feel like this is something that I don't need to do. Advances in lung cancer treatments over the last few years have made it possible to live with lung cancer for years after diagnosis. But COVID-19 poses a significant risk to people living with lung cancer. Now, newly approved COVID-19 vaccines are available, but the challenges to a nationwide rollout are just beginning. First up, making sure enough people have trust in the new vaccines and are willing to take them. I'm Diane Mulligan. And I'm Sarah Beatty. Today on the Living with Lung Cancer Hope with Answers podcast, we'll explore one challenge to the rollout, building trust in the safety of the vaccine among communities of color. We'll talk to thoracic surgeon, Dr. David Cook of UC Davis Health, an African-American doctor who volunteered for the Pfizer phase three COVID clinical trial and African-American lung cancer patient advocates, Montessa Lee and Laronica Conway about their perspectives on the COVID vaccines. Lung cancer is a tough topic. It's a disease that affects patients, families, friends, co-workers. But first, it's a disease that affects people. The Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast brings you stories about people living, truly living with lung cancer. The researchers dedicated to finding new breakthrough treatments and others who are working to bring hope into the lung cancer experience. The COVID-19 pandemic has affected almost every aspect of life, keeping so many of us separated from our family, friends, and colleagues, especially people living with lung cancer. We've all been watching science happen in real time as scientists around the world race to develop coronavirus vaccines to keep people safe and healthy. But developing vaccines is just the first step in the process. Now people have to be willing to take them. For communities of color, already disproportionately affected by COVID-19 and healthcare disparities, much work needs to be done to develop trust in the vaccines. As one first step in that process, African-American thoracic surgeon Dr. David Cook joined the Phase three Pfizer clinical trial to help assess the vaccine safety, especially in people of color. Dr. Cook you volunteered for and participated in the Pfizer clinical trial for the coronavirus vaccine. Tell me, what was that like? Well, thank you very much for having me here to, to discuss this really important issue, uh, specifically the COVID-19 global pandemic. Uh, it's really been, um, as, as we all know, it's, it's been a tough and trying year. And this pandemic has spread throughout our nation infecting um, uh, many Americans, um, both with uh, um, uh, symptoms of the disease and death of our loved ones and friends and family. It also disproportionately affects in regards to death, uh, vulnerable populations, specifically people of color. Luckily, uh, there have been um, uh, advances in regards to vaccine development to try to fight COVID-19. And uh, there have been three companies that have been involved with vaccine development, specifically Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca. And at the University of California Davis or UC Davis Health, we do have an active Pfizer 
phase three clinical trial uh, vaccine um, uh, uh, clinical study going on right now. And I volunteered for that study. What was that experience like? I mean, you're a surgeon and I'm wondering what you would tell the public um, about the safety of the various vaccines. I mean, you, you participated in the Pfizer trial and there are several other vaccine trials in, currently active right now. One concern that we hear frequently is that people are worried about these vaccines being produced so quickly. And as a surgeon, as a medical professional, what would you tell people about um, the experience of participating in one of these clinical trials yourself? So the, the, the trial that I participated in here at UC Davis takes what's called mRNA or genetic material that uses to produce a protein that is found within the COVID-19 viron. That protein that's produced by that mRNA is then identified by one's immune system and we were able to hopefully develop an immune response to that protein. So when that individual is challenged by the actual living virus down the road, the idea is that their immune system would kill that virus before uh, causing problems in, in, in the body. Now, um, this, vi this vaccine, whether it's produced by Pfizer or other industries, is being produced at a rapid rate at a rapid speed or being developed at a rapid speed. In fact, I believe the, the US intervention on this is called Operation Warp Speed. However, this, is, this vaccine is being developed in a way that utilizes what's called the scientific method. So using iterative research processes that are common in terms of clinical trial development. So phase one, uh, phase one looks at the actual material used in the vaccine and does it cause negative effects in the body? So uh, looking at the ideal dosage and, and, and the materials used in the vaccine, does it cause negative problems in a small group of people? Phase two then takes the identified dosages into a larger group of people and then phase three is what's called a large randomized clinical trial where you compare the proposed vaccine to a placebo. And then you inject a large number of volunteers with a, either a randomized sample of vaccine or placebo, and then look at the effects uh, of those individuals as they live within their own environments and who gets infected with COVID and who does not. And what the preliminary data of Pfizer shows, uh, as well as Moderna, is that the vaccines that they propose are greater than 90% effective. Now, with any vaccine or with any medication or therapeutic in the clinical trial, there are potential for adverse reactions. From my understanding, and we don't know because this is a blinded clinical trial, um, we outside of the Pfizer uh, researchers don't know who received vaccine and who received placebo. But some of the symptoms that have been involved, specifically with the Pfizer trial that we have been made aware of, are symptoms such as profound fatigue, high level of fever, and other potential minor symptomatology. So that's all favorable. Uh, that's, those symptomatology, although can be 
can be profound. It might affect someone's ability to go to work or, or participate in other activities on the short term. Big picture, those symptomatology uh, appear to be favorable. Dr. Cook, tell me, I think so many people have a, a concern about even participating in any clinical trials, but I'm interested in why you decided to participate in this trial. The reason why I decided to participate in this trial is the following. When I looked at the initial release of the Moderna trial data, I noticed that there were very few African-Americans who were participatory in that early phase trial. Because we do know that African-Americans um, black and African-American communities and other communities of color, and also women, participate in clinical trials at less rates than other groups, specifically um, white Americans and white males. Therefore, it might be difficult to extrapolate the results of those trials to those other communities. And also, it may be difficult for individuals of those communities to benefit from the potentially positive and transformational results of those trials. We know that for a fact in our oncologic trial population, and I primarily do thoracic oncology surgery. Now, the reason why uh, the, there's a low participation of, of, of at-risk communities, specifically communities of color, as well as Black and African-American communities, is because of structural and institutional racism within our healthcare system. Because of things like the Tuskegee uh, uh, trial that, that occurred in the 1940s up to 1972, where black males who were stricken with syphilis um, were studied on an observational trial and not told that they had syphilis and not given penicillin treatment. And then that travesty was, was made public uh, in the early 1970s. That has created a legacy of mistrust for the Black African-American community with the healthcare system, specifically as it relates to clinical trials. There have been other examples. For instance, we, we have a, a, a immortal cell line called HeLa cells, and those cells have been used to, to develop cures for multiple diseases and treatments for multiple diseases, and has made billions of dollars in the pharmaceutical and um, biotech industry. However, those cells, that immortal cell line was um, developed from a uh, African-American woman from the Baltimore area named Henrietta Lacks, who had cervical cancer. And those, that cancer was taken from her for, as part of treatment, but then those cells were used without her knowledge and without her consent. And you know, really the, the, the vast um, benefit uh, was not attributed to her initially and then the multi-billion dollar industry that developed out of those cells, um, she and her family did not benefit from it as well. And there are multiple other examples that would justify a mistrust of the healthcare system um, by Black and African-Americans. The onus is on the healthcare system and medical providers to have that cultural competency to develop that trust and develop that, that uh, comfort level within the healthcare system so Black and African-Americans and other communities of color can benefit from these innovative clinical trials. So as a African-American provider, African-American individual myself, I wanted to set a pace setting example and volunteer for this Pfizer trial to show that 
I have trust in this trial and in UC Davis Health System that is administering this trial. And so therefore set an example. So perhaps other African-Americans and other uh, underserved communities could look at this example that I'm setting and potentially uh, either contribute and volunteer for those trials or when the product of those trials become FDA approved, take advantage and um, um, of that FDA approved vaccine. Because we do know that in regards to this COVID-19 pandemic, Black, African-Americans, Latinos, Indigenous peoples and Native Americans are disproportionately affected in regards to death and COVID-19. You mentioned um, a number of, of uh, specific examples and unfortunately are a, a, a number, a great many of them, um, of these issues that have happened that create this very understandable sense of distrust. I looked up a bit of research, very recent, it, it was in an article published last month by Stat News and, and Harris, showing that um, the number of people who say they'll get a coronavirus vaccine as soon as it's available uh, is dropping, and especially African-Americans, I think it's under just under 50%. As a physician, as someone who has participated in one of the current um, coronavirus clinical trials, um, what would you say to a patient of color, to communities of color who um, have this understandable distrust of the medical system? What would you say about the, the, you know, the current clinical trials and the importance of the product of those trials? The first thing I would say is that your distrust is warranted based on past activities of our healthcare system. So I wouldn't minimize or, um, or belittle uh, an individual's mistrust. Instead, I would address the elephant in the room and really have a dialogue about that mistrust. Um, I think, unfortunately, our response, United States, response to this COVID-19 pandemic has been extremely politicized. And science and good science and the scientific method um, has been diminished. However, uh, we do know that um, when you look at um, individuals like Dr. Anthony Fauci, um, who has really good evidence-based views and critiques uh, of the three vaccines that will be available uh, potentially in the United States. I really trust his view and interpretations uh, of the data. In addition, when you look at the, the um, transition team of uh, President-elect Joseph Biden and his transition team, if you look at the composition of, the, of his trans transition team, especially as it relates to the COVID-19 pandemic, we see trusted resources um, and, uh, in science. We see people who are used to high-level impactful research and high-level impactful patient engagement and people who are experts in healthcare disparities and fighting those disparity gaps. And then you also look at the state level and many states, including the state which I reside in, the state of California, have set up commissions or boards or task force, however you wanna call them, that are multidisciplinary, multi-specialty, 
and multi-stakeholder who will really take a jaundiced eye and look at the results of the soon-to-be FDA-approved vaccines. So when you have all those level of scrutiny, if it's determined that these vaccines will be helpful and appropriate and safe, then um, it's important for an individual to have a dialogue with this clinician and to say, with their, with their, their primary care doctor or provider and say, is this the right vaccine for me? Is it, right for, is it safe for me to participate in the vaccine? I suspect when we ultimately have FDA approved vaccines for COVID-19, I suspect that they will be relatively safe. So what does that mean relatively safe? You have to balance the risks and benefits of any um, uh, intervention, whether it's surgical, pharmaceutical, or otherwise. And what are the risks? The risks are, develop, are catching COVID-19, becoming sick from it, or dying from it, or spreading it to your friend or loved one or coworker. And then what is the benefits of the, back of the intervention? The benefit is preventing that from happening. And what are the risks of the, of, of the um, intervention? And we have documented symptomatology and those will be released to the general public. So it's always weighing the risk and benefits from any intervention. I suspect when we have FDA approved vaccines, we will identify that the benefits of those vaccines will outweigh the risk for most individuals. That's great information, Dr. Cook. And, and I think things that it's information people need to hear. So thank you so much for that. Um, you do a lot of work in making sure everyone has access to lung cancer screening and the standard of care. But in a recent Cure Today interview, you said there's still a huge disparity in screening, for example, between lung cancer and breast cancer. So how can medical professionals contribute to better healthcare outcomes for all those groups? We've had a long-standing national failure in regards to dissemination of potentially life-saving population health for lung cancer. And that's specifically lung cancer screening with low-dose CT scan. So what lung cancer screening with low-dose CT scan, it's, it takes what's called a, a computed tomography scan or a CT scan or often called a CAT scan. And basically it's a, a specialized X-ray that scans your chest and looks for abnormalities. Now, lung cancer screening with low-dose CT scan is identified for those individuals who are considered at the highest risk for developing lung cancer. Now, keep in mind, lung cancer kills more women and kills more men than breast cancer, prostate cancer, and colon cancer. It's the number one cancer killer for both men and women. So it kills more women than breast cancer. So we have, just like we have screening for breast cancer in mammography, and just like we have screening for colon and rectal cancer in uh, colonoscopy, and just like we have screening for prostate cancer in terms of PSA uh, serum tests, we have screening for lung cancer called low-dose CT scan. Now, the, the people who are eligible for lung cancer screening with low-dose CT scan are those individuals who are considered the highest risk for developing lung cancer. And those are people who are aged 55 to 80, who have what's called a 30-pack year smoking history. So what does that mean? You take the number of years that you've smoked and, and multiply it by the packs per day you smoked. So if you smoke for 30 years, one pack per day, that's 30 pack years. If you smoke for 15 years, two packs per day, that's 30 pack years. And if you have quit smoking, then you've quit within uh, a 15 year time period. 
data has shown that for those individuals who get screening for, for uh, lung cancer with low dose CT scan, we have a 20% or more survival advantage. So a 20% reduction in death from lung cancer. And I say 20% or more because uh, a study that was performed, a large uh, national US randomized clinical trial was performed at the beginning of the century in the 2000s, and that showed a 20% reduction. Now that was, that, that study was performed over 20 years ago. Since then, we've had innovations in, in our radiology technology, innovations in our approach in studying films, and a recent study called the Nelson trial that was released in Europe showed a, a greater than 30% survival advantage um, for lung cancer screening. And so we have an opportunity to save, according to the American Lung Association, if we screen the 8 million people who are, are, are eligible in the United States every year, we could save 48,000 lives each year from lung cancer in our country. Now, the third uh, annual 2020 American Lung Association State of Lung Cancer Report shows that it, of, in 2019, of all the individuals who are eligible for lung cancer screening, less than 6% actually got screened in the United States. Now, you compare that to all the individuals who are, who are eligible for mammography screening for breast cancer, 70% were screened. And you can see that's a vast uh, difference and a vast gap that we must, we must do better. Really, it feels like so much of what you're saying is that there must be trust between a patient and a care provider, a doctor, a nurse, a nurse practitioner, a, um, a specialist doctor like yourself. What are the best questions that patients can ask their doctors or their care providers about the coronavirus vaccine, maybe about screening that's right for them. What are the questions that people can take, specifically communities of color can take to their trusted care providers um, to get answers about what the best care is for them in their particular situation? So patient-centered care is two-way dialogue and two-way communication. Um, and uh, in many respects is sort of shared decision-making. So what can uh, patients uh, ask their doctors or, or care provider? Uh, is the vaccine safe for me? That's one question. Um, as we are in this COVID-19 pandemic, uh, we have that intersection of, of cancer care uh, and risk of developing COVID-19. So when it comes to say lung cancer screening, is it safe for me to get screened now? And, and am I part of that high risk group for, for getting screened? But what can our care providers and our doctors uh, ask our patients? Well, one is, are you a, are, is there something that you are afraid about? Uh, what are your concerns? What are your concerns about treatment for COVID-19? What are your concerns about the vaccine? And then have that dialogue, understand those concerns and have that dialogue. So when it comes to building trust, Trust is built out of dialogue and understanding one's perspective and having empathy for that perspective. And without that dialogue, it's hard to have a cultural competent care and it's hard to have trust, uh, a care that's built on trust. So the key is, is to have that dialogue. Volunteers are the heart of every clinical trial 
and especially the COVID trials. We are so grateful for Dr. Cook's perspective on the Pfizer vaccine. Up next, we'll talk to two lung cancer patient advocates about what's on their minds as the nationwide COVID vaccine rollout gets underway. Are you enjoying the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast? Consider making a donation to help LCFA produce this resource for patients or anyone seeking answers, hope, and access to updated treatment information, scientific investigation, and clinical trials. Just text LCF America to 41444 to join in this important fight. All of us worldwide really have been watching science happen in real time as scientists have scrambled to develop COVID-19 vaccines. For some, getting the vaccine is an easy decision. But for some people, especially communities of color, the choice to take the coronavirus vaccine is more complicated. To get a perspective on these decisions, we are so lucky to be able to talk to lung cancer patient advocates Montessa Lee, a small cell lung cancer survivor, and Loronica Conway, whose patient advocacy honors her mother, Lily. So this is a really, I think it's fair to say, a, a kind of a challenging topic, a challenging conversation. Um, we just heard from Dr. Cook, his experience in participating in the Pfizer phase three clinical trial for COVID. And he touched on a number of reasons that communities of color would feel concerned about um, a potential vaccine, concerned about a clinical trial. Does the experience that he talked about sound familiar to you both? Yes. A matter of fact, we were just talking about that in my um, cohort group for the dissertation group about uh, participating in getting that vaccine like a guinea pig, as, as people would put it. Yeah, and that's, that's the first thing people think about when they hear clinical trials is guinea pig. And I don't want to be a guinea pig. And so, yeah, that's always been concerning. And now even more so because this is something that's new and no one's ever talked about it. So you have no idea what's going to happen. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely concerning. And if you've already been in a marginalized population, some people might feel like their life doesn't matter to those researchers or anyone else in that hospital. It's the easy way to do an experiment on someone. Right, right. Loronica, you um, just mentioned that you are, enroll people in clinical trials, not for COVID, but for other things. Maybe talk about the experience of what a clinical trial is and how you bring your background, your kind of worldview to getting people comfortable with what that process is like. The first thing I tell people when they're interested in being in a clinical trial, whether it's radiation oncology or any kind of trial is, what they're doing is helping someone in the future. And so we will use their information without identifying it to them to help someone else later on. And so I think once you kind of break it down and say, okay, look, it's not about hurting you. It's not about um, you know hurting those in your family. It's number one, to help you figure out the next step you know, in whatever this, particular diseases. And then number two, help others. Um, a lot of people 
don't really think about it as helping others. They only think about, hey, I'm in this trial so I can get better. But it's just like when you see um, Advil, I mean, and you see the side effects, someone had to actually take Advil or be in a clinical trial to see what would happen um, to them. And then that's way they, that's how they, you know, determine what the, what the side effects are. And so we've not had enough minorities to be a part of clinical trials. And so when I do run across people who are interested, I explain to them that the process is, is much slower than it seems and you have time to make a decision on what you want to do. That's a really good description of it and, and such a, a good way to um, kind of further the education process because it's interesting, a number of doctors that I've talked to recently have said, you know, we're kind of all getting this crash course in medical science right now with COVID and understanding what a phase one trial is, phase two, phase three, why it takes so long to develop new drugs. Um, and so in a way, there's some good work being done to help educate people about here's how, you know, the medical body of knowledge moves forward. Um, but I think that it's really understandable why some people would feel very concerned about, many people would feel very concerned about the speed with which this vaccine has been created. And, and I think that's where the 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 issue lies is the speed. Um, but like you were saying, I mean, there's so much going on in the medical community that we haven't heard about and that no one knew that they had been working on this vaccine for years. Um, you know, it's it's always been something that the scientists knew could happen. So they've always been working on it, but we just found out about it. And so I can understand people having, you know, concerns because it's like, hey, this is like, first time I'm hearing about this. Why would I do something I know nothing about? Um, but yeah, so I think it's, you know, people are slowly understanding now, like it's important to um, be a part of this so that we can figure out what's going to happen in the future. Uh, you know, it comes out, as it hasn't been tested on anybody like myself who had uh, cancer, you know, how big was the population? Was it across age levels, X, Y, and African-Americans? What, you know, did they come down and test us? And I was thinking, what was that sample size? And I know that um, a lot of African-Americans don't participate in clinical trials. They, we don't have um, tissues, um, bone marrow samples, you know, so, so there's a lot of lag. And I know that in my head from the scientific work that I do with the stuff I'm involved in, but part of me still knows they have a history of this disparity in healthcare, access to healthcare and, and um, you know, so thinking like like a scale, but watching that and then listening to Dr. Cook, and I'm realizing that again, like they started in January, just like Veronica said, even when it hit China, they were working on this, and um, and then I'm like, and I know how clinical trials work, so I'm thinking like, how did they get this rolled out so fast? Well, and I think too, you know, we've got to be honest in that in the Black community, we've always had a fear of you know anything that deals with medicine, doctors, any kind of scientific care, um, because we've always felt like we've not been a part of that conversation. And then when you when you throw in Tuskegee and you throw in Henrietta Lacks and all of these situations where not only were we not told, um, we weren't even, um, I guess, compensated for it or even, you know, apologized to until much later, um, it, you can understand why people are afraid. 
and, and why they feel like this is something that I don't need to do because, you know, they're only going to do something to help to hurt me and my family. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a tough hill to climb. Um, but hopefully, you know, we've got enough people on the front end, especially medical workers who are taking it, especially black doctors who say, Hey, this is something I'm going to do. And, you know, maybe if they see somebody they know, they would be more likely to do it. And a distrust, you know, like you said, and like, you know, in the minority communities, there's a distrust now sometimes with the cops, police, there's a distrust with the medical professions and um, how do you rebuild those relationships and, and teach? I, I think Dr. Cook said something too about that cultural competence, you know, and how do you, how do we teach that to the people on the front end, you know? You know, one thing that struck me um, as I did a bit of research for this podcast, um, I mean, I had heard about testosterone Tuskegee. And yet when I went and did a little bit of research and found out that the men who were in that study um, were not treated, I mean, given no treatment at all, um, it, half the time weren't even told of their diagnosis. Um, and then, you know, doing a little bit more research, um, I mean, egregious doesn't, doesn't really describe the treatment of people who have been um, either involved in trials or who have been excluded from trials. I think it's maybe surprising to people who don't have that lived experience um, to understand and, and start to appreciate this very valid, very real concern that many, many people have. And before, you know, in, in tradition and culture, you know, it, these stories were passed on orally, you know, like, oh, no, don't don't go down there by Hopkins. They'll pick you up off of the street and do some experiments and you'll never be found. And so now, of course, we have social media. So we see these um, we, we see more of it. You know, you, you, you see something happened on TV and live or, you know, on social media live. And and um, I, I don't know how you, you you have to build that cultural competence to rebuild that trust and say, um, we're not just experimenting on you. We value your life. You know, your life means something to us. And I, I love that Advil description. I mean, that is, I would have never thought about that, but that's a perfect way. You take it, you probably take Advil, you've taken it or aspirin and someone had to go through a trial before we knew it would work on you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and like with anything else, I mean, a lot of these trials, we've never really had a lot of minorities participate. So in some ways, we really don't know what's going to happen to us, you know, if we're taking cough syrup or whatever it is, um, because we know that, you know, we react differently, or most of us do sometimes. It depends, you know, if we've got, you know, um, high blood pressure or diabetes or whatever the case may be. Um, and so there's not enough of us that have been in clinical trials to know really what's going to happen. So we're, you know, we're just pretty much assuming that it's going to work for us. But in this case, I think they are actually taking the effort, the engagement part of it, and trying to use social media and everything else to say, hey, listen, here's, here's what we know. Um, here's what we, we want to see happen. And, you know, it's not something that we're doing to hurt you. Um, you know, so, and I, and I think you have to look at it too. It's like, all right, like you were saying, the, the oral stories being passed down, that's the only way we knew to communicate. You know, my dad grew up in the forties and fifties and, you know, I grew up in a small rural town where, you know, there were soybean farms and cotton farms. And that's the only way, you know, word 
spread. It's, you know, you're riding on a wagon to go to, you know, Sister Johnson's house and they'll say, hey, have you heard about so-and-so? And then that's, there's no one to, you know, to discount that. There's no one to say, no, this is what really happened. Um, if we said it, then it happened. And that's how you see it. And then if you go to church and Reverend so-and-so says it, then it really happened. And so, you know, we, we would look to church to, to get the information. And then it goes to, from that church to another church. Next thing you know, from Louisiana to Michigan to, and, you know, it's, um, it's fascinating when you think about our community, our communication process, but at the same time, you know, it is to a detriment because we have sort of isolated ourselves from the outside world because we don't trust or we haven't trusted. Um, you know, I think it's easier now in the world of Google and WebMD and all of that, but um, hopefully with this vaccine, it's not going to just open up conversation about COVID-19, but conversations about everything else related to healthcare in the minority community. How do you feel having listened to the interview with Dr. Cook? Um, it, it, and, and you both have brought up a couple of times the um, his statement about really building that trust, um, communicating based on, on relationships, uh, mutually respectful and beneficial relationships. How do you feel now about taking or potentially taking a COVID-19 vaccine um, after listening to the, the conversation with Dr. Cook? I'm actually open to taking it um, even more so, but I, you know, of course, like everybody else at the very beginning, I didn't know enough, um, but I have actually done some reading and Dr. Cook helps break it down, you know, <clears throat> even further, because again, it's like, it's coming from someone you trust. I mean, you know, he's, he's explaining it in such a way that it makes sense. Um, so, so yeah, I would not at this point have a, have a problem taking it. Um, you know, now it's, it's new because we just had the person, you know, the first person take it. Um, but I've also talked to um, some of the doctors that I work with and they also, um, you know, were part of the clinical trials and basically talked about some of the side effects and fevers and that kind of stuff, but I trust them. And so it's at a point where you say, okay, who do you find that you trust that you can go to for the information? And, um, you know, Dr. Cook just solidified just, you know, what I was already thinking. And I really appreciate how Dr. Cook said these are the questions you could ask, because I would definitely ask for myself, has it been tested on anybody that has previous lung damage or, you know, that, um, because, because in essence, if, if a risk is that you can get COVID, you know, I, that would be something that I'm very interested in. Um, you know, so I would, I would now, after listening to both, though, I'm leaning more towards knowing that, um, it probably is safe and that the FDA, even if, though it rolled out quickly, they would not put something, you know, on the mark. We know that long process for clinical trials. So here we are um, kind of at that point. You know, we, we know that there are two vaccines that are, um, you know, uh, in the very final stages of approval. Um, the information from trusted sources says that they are um, effective, that they are, you know, safe. So where, where does that leave you both? I mean, what are, what are the next steps that you will be taking in analyzing the choice that you have in front of you to 
take this or not take this? What kinds of questions will you be asking about the vaccine before you decide to take it? I think when it finally rolls out, when I find out what, what rolled out the number I'm going to be in, I will definitely ask, you know, my own, probably more so the oncologist questions about it and, and what they know are, are um, even studying those pages from Pfizer or Moderna, you know, whichever one, because I guess then you have to know which one you're getting, um, you know, studying those pages as well, um, to see what kind of sample size the population they have or what side effects or, you know, and um, if it's mandated, I guess I won't have a choice, but, you know, in the meantime, I'm going to be looking at those trials coming out of the UK to see, like, now they're talking about if you have, you know, bad allergies or whatever, you know, you're advised not to take it. So I'll be looking at those results that will come out of the UK first as well. Yeah, definitely looking at the results. Um, but I'm going to take advantage of working at, you know, at an academic institution. And I told some friends the other day, I said, you know, I take advantage of everything that comes out where it's a webinar or whatever it is. And it could be about a subject that I know nothing about, but I have access to it because of where I work. And so I'm constantly, you know, talking to the doctors I work with. And so I'm going to take advantage of that. And then on my part, tell my friends and, and get on Facebook or whatever I need to do um, to say, okay, here's what I found out. And, you know, I'm not going to keep it to myself. And so, so yeah, definitely looking at the results, but also speaking to those who are, you know, in conversations with these scientists all the time. Um, and, you know, and I don't work in that, that area, but being in close proximity, I think helps. So, because you know who to go to or who to talk to. And so, yeah, that's, that's the part I like about, you know, being where I am, because you can't, I guess you can't really say that you don't know enough. You know, it's like, you're always looking for more information. And then I have to remember that there are people who don't have that, that, you know, possibility. So that's when you do get on Twitter and Facebook and you, you know, you share what you know, um, because people are curious and they need to know. And it's like, well, Veronica says, and I'm like, well, I'm just passing down what somebody else said, but you know, you can't keep the information to yourself. So I'm, I'm definitely reading and looking and watching, um, and and praying. And you know, we'll see how it how it all how it all pans out. We are so grateful to lung cancer patient advocates Veronica Conway and Montessa Lee, and Dr. David Cook of UC Davis Health for their information and perspective on the COVID nineteen vaccines. Join us next time on the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast, and thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast. You'll be notified every time a new episode is available. So visit us online at lcfamerica.org, where you can find more information about the latest in lung cancer research, new treatments, and more. You can also join the conversation with LCFA on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Music